that last mile is really the people and the companies and the partnerships and alliances that are influencing that customer and providing them services. If we're able to elevate that part of the conversation the same way we did over the last 20 years to really make it a science. And if you have now partnership and alliance professionals walking into that same boardroom, they're going to compete for those dollars and probably win because you know some of the biggest companies in the world, well, all of them that are Fortune 100 tech companies have you know, 75, 80% or more of their sales that go through channels. You know, that's the way to amplify and that's the way to grow your business at scale is to do it with an army of outsiders who are influencing the customers. Hello and welcome back to the show. I am your host, Alex Glenn, and today we continue our series of episodes on partner programs and how marketing automation is handling the scale of channel programs for thousands of software companies globally. Forrester.com predicts the through-channel software market to grow to $1.18 billion by 2023. This market includes tens of thousands of digital agencies realizing $2 billion in service management revenue by that year alone. So I invited Mr. Jay McBain from Forrester.com to join me in unpacking the topic of through-channel marketing automation. Jay is one of the most visible thought leaders in the global technology channel. Named to the top 40 under 40 by Business Review, he is often sought out for industry guidance and future trends. He has spent his 24-year career in various executive channel sales, marketing, and strategy roles within IBM, Lenovo, Autotask, and Channelize. Jay is the principal analyst for global channels at Forrester.com, one of the most influential global research and advisory firms in the world. In this discussion, Jay and I review the third stage of growth for software companies, one versus two tier channel partner programs, the partner relations and management stack, how to determine your IPP or your ideal partner persona, the six phases to partner program development. And then we wrap up by giving some actionable advice to those about launch, scale, and development of partner programs. This was one of the most enlightening episodes I've had the pleasure to be a part of with one of the brightest people in channel today. I really hope you agree and enjoy this episode with Jay McBain. Welcome to the Marketing Automation Discussion. Here's your host, my dad. All right, Jay, welcome to the show. First question, what is quote-unquote channel? Well, it's a good question. 75% of world trade goes actually indirectly. So we call in every industry the way that those you know products or services get to the customer, indirect sales or channel sales, partnership sales, alliances. But it's easier when you think of in your personal life or your professional life, when you buy a car, you buy it from a dealer. That dealer is a channel for the manufacturer. When you buy a TV, you buy it from a retailer. You know, Best Buy, for example, is a channel for Samsung, who makes the TV. 
when you buy a jar of peanut butter, you buy it from a grocer. That grocer is a channel for, you know, Jif or Skippy or whatever peanut butter you buy. So almost everything you buy in your personal life and professional life go through some level of channel depending on the 27 industries that you're looking to buy in. Wonderful. And as a marketer, the reason I think a lot of confusion happens around the word channel is we do have our channels, which encompass, like you mentioned, every channel where customers come into my funnel, my product, my storefront. Yeah. Think of it as the companies, the third party companies that you work with that you do not actively control. Um, It could be franchises, again, agencies, dealers, adjusters. Um, resellers in every industry, they go by you know slightly different names, but these are definitely the people and the companies that you work with to get your product to market, to get it serviced, and obviously these are the people that are influencing your buyers, you know, at all stages of, uh, of the cycle. One thing that I would love to get a little bit more clarification on before we get into this episode is the difference between you know reselling and co-selling specifically the types of partnerships that you can have. You know, you have your affiliates, ambassadors, resellers, co-sellers, but how do you break up the term partners? What are these sub-states of partnerships? Yeah, and this is one of the biggest changes that are happening to channel sales, I would say, in the last 37 years. Traditionally, your resellers or your partnerships have been based around a transaction. So like I said, you buy your car, you buy your TV, you buy your peanut butter, So it's the transaction that the manufacturer or the OEM is concerned with. Uh, In this case, now, partnerships are expanding to have non-transacting partners actually take more of the load. So when I look at examples like uh, Microsoft, for example, has 400,000 resellers, and they've had them for decades, probably 30 plus years. What's interesting is there's 7,500 new partners that are joining Microsoft every month, but 80% of them are now non-transacting. So in other words, they're not the place where you procure Microsoft stuff. They're the influencers. They're the consultants. They're the integrators, the installers, the implementers. They are the people that come and help you retain or renew Microsoft software. So at all different stages, These are the people that heavily influence buyers, but they're not involved in actually the transaction. So this world now really is bifurcated between transacting partners and non-transacting. I love it. And that's a perfect dovetail into the discussion that we're going to have around marketing automation and how that has influenced and changed this world of channel, this world of reseller partnerships. Uh, the people that are non-transacting, the people that simply facilitate the purchase. They, uh, they are the blog that you go to to click through and become in-funnel prospects for the end-all, be-all manufacturer SaaS company. And you are giving a lot of talks on channel, a lot of talks about partnerships throughout this year. But um, what is most interesting? What have you been pulled into? What kind of conversations are you planning to have this year around channel? Yeah, around the world, there's about 150 shows a year that are basically with the audience of different types of channels. And I move across different industries. So I will spend, you know, more than half my time in the technology industry with SaaS companies. But, you know, I spent time in Switzerland this year with pharmaceuticals. I've spent time with everything from office chairs to plumbers and HVAC and 
every industry, you know, once you take the taxonomy or the lexicon of what they call their channels and, you know, those type of things out of it, they all have similar challenges. And, you know, I, I like to spend time in all of them, but every year I give about 50 speeches. So I cover about a third of it, you know, over the course of three years, perhaps I hit them all. Uh, but the idea is to really talk about where the market's going and, you know, what it may look like in three to five years to not only let the partners, uh, you know, become aware and, and maybe hire the right skills and change their business models and really set themselves up for success. But the second audience is really the vendors and manufacturers and OEMs and all the people that are selling to channels and through channels and with channels to help them, you know, build better programs, to help them find new partners and be able to develop them and incent them and then co-sell and co-market with them. So kind of a dual audience. And then really the technology and the process and the people that make all that happen. Uh, that's kind of what I do for a living. But in terms of what I speak about is really the future. And, you know, most people, especially if you have years and years of experience of doing this, you know, I've learned over time, you know, how to set up a program maybe, or how to, uh, you know, move partners through their own journey. But when you look forward, there's so many changes happening, especially in the last 18 months that, you know, almost every company on the vendor side, as well as the partner side need to transform. You, for example, have a new buyer and, you know, we've made a lot of light at Forrester about the fact that 65% of all technology decisions today are made by line of business executives. You know, these are people like marketing and sales and operations and finance and HR people who are now making two thirds. And at some point in the next few years, it'll be 80% of all decisions. So no longer do you have these infrastructure buyers, you now have basically line of business buyers. So we do a lot of research about how they buy, what the new journey looks like, what the psychology looks like, what their behaviors look like, but when you inspect those, you know, different things, there's a really different future for how partnerships and alliances and what we call channels are going to work in, in the next few years. And that's probably the topic that I get asked to speak about the most. All right. And the topic at hand, the title of this episode, uh, we're going to get into through channel marketing automation. There are a lot of stats that we're going to put in the article behind this episode. So check that out on automated.af. Um, search for TCMA and find that article. Uh, there'll be some links in the show notes if you want to check out the infographic that Jay has developed and, and really what has put this into perspective for me, but really what the ecosystem looks like around partnerships and partnership software. There's a lot of players. There's a lot of tasks to be done in this ecosystem, especially at scale. And Jay is the foremost expert on that. And that's why he's on the show. So let's talk about the key developments in TCMA over the last five, 10 years? I mean, are there some really key inflection points, some areas that are becoming most interesting for you? Uh, definitely. And I, I've called it the third stage because 20 years ago, and it was almost to the day 20 years ago that salesforce.com got their start, CRM you know, became a thing. Uh, if you talk to salespeople more than 20 years ago, you used to hear things like, you have to be born to be a salesperson, you know, I manage this territory with my gut. Well, you don't hear that anymore. You know, there's a level of sales enablement that have, it's at the point where you're managing to the seventh decimal point. It's truly become a science in the last 20 years. And that's direct sales. 10 years later and 10 years ago, marketing automation did that for marketing. 
along with other technology layered on top of it. But, you know, more than 10 years ago, you used to hear marketing professionals walk around and make jokes that 50% of your marketing dollars are wasted. You just don't know which 50%, you know, ha, ha, ha. Well, you don't hear that today. You know, we're getting to the point of maturity now in marketing technology. You know, I mentioned the CMO spends more on technology than the CIO does in dollars. And they're at the point of science now where the levers and dials and they understand. So they're competing at the boardroom level at the CFO and the CEO to get investment. Don't give it to direct sales. Give it to me because here's the social and search and email and inbound and here's all the levers and dials and I can drive more ROI than giving it to the sales team. So third stage, which is now, now, you know, 10 years later, is the channel. So 75% of the world flows indirectly. And now every company on the planet has spent 20 years on the direct sales and marketing side. So it's been a blind spot, been laggards in, in terms of catching up. But we really haven't paved that last mile to the customer yet. And that last mile is really the people and the companies and the partnerships and alliances that are influencing that customer and providing them services. If we're able to elevate that part of the conversation the same way we did over the last 20 years to really make it a science. And if you have now partnership and alliance professionals walking into that same boardroom, they're going to compete for those dollars and probably win because, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world well, all of them that are Fortune 100 tech companies have, you know, 75, 80% or more of their sales that go through channels. You know, that's the way to amplify and that's the way to grow your business at scale is to do it with an army of outsiders who are influencing the customers. This is the third stage, which is this partner enablement or through channel marketing automation st stage that we think is going to be the fastest growing marketing category uh, in the next 10 years. Yeah. And I, I love some of the stats that you have. I couldn't believe how many employees are dedicated. 2000 employees are dedicated to TCMA software development. Incredible. And, and we do have a good episode. If you want to check that out uh, with Jessica Manasian about the development of the marketing team and how much money is spent on marketing automation software and marketing software in general uh, and what that means. And the argument here or the premise here is more and more of that overall budget is going to go towards the actual partner enablement side of the stack and developing that because the ROI has proven to be so much higher. The actual percentage return on dollars spent on partnership enablement software. So a lot of the companies that I work with, and I work with a lot of software companies on a multitude of levels from choice to setup to management on both sides of the table. What I'd like to do here is to paint a good picture to kind of put this into perspective for both sides, for both the sellers and the users. So I'd like to do a little bit of a hypothetical and help illustrate that. Is that okay? Yeah, let's, let's do it. Awesome. So first premise here, let's just say I'm a founder of a SaaS company that's, that's past product market fit. We've reached PMF according to us. Um, now let's say I'm, I'm going past my minimalist stack and I'm moving into, um, a new automation tool. I want to, I want to kind of build out my marketing automation system. So I'm looking at some different tools and just to talk to everybody, I'm looking at maybe active campaign, uh, maybe Marketo. Um, I know those are vastly different, but, um, let's just talk to everybody. So how does this purchase process look if I'm buying through a reseller partner of the end provider in this case, how does, how does that look for my introduction to the software as well as 
what happens when I actually go and purchase the software. And I'm not talking about just clicking a link and, and, and having that link be tracked as an affiliate, but let's just say you're actually a channel partner that's, that's really enabled to sell those softwares to me. How does that look? What does the backend look like? And, and what does that process look like for me? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I, I like this analogy. The, first of all, as a founder of a SaaS company, you are a member of 175,000 others. So there's now 175,000 SaaS companies in the world. 10 years ago, there was 10,000. 10 years from now, there's going to be a million. So things are changing rapidly. And there are companies sprouting up every day. There's obviously private equity and, and um, venture capital streaming in by the, by the billions uh, that are pushing this. But here's what's happening just in the last uh, you know, couple of years, actually last six months to a year, is the cost to acquire a customer, the CAC, has gone up by 65%. So doing the traditional things when you have, it's not 175,000 competitors because there's so many types of software, but the average SaaS founder has gone from two competitors in 2013 to now nine. So... This is a different environment than where you were maybe a couple of years ago and setting up and getting into the decision criteria of putting in a marketing automation or, or, or some level of marketing stack to, to solve your problem. You're going to start like every buyer does. The average is 68% of your time will be a digital journey. And you're going to you know, start with a Google search and you get into peer groups. You're going to start to look at webinars. You'll listen to this podcast and you know, you're going to start to frame up your knowledge about how to be successful, uh, you know, based on a lot of your learnings through this first 68% of your journey. What's interesting, though, is on average, you're going to bring in kind of five different people or firms to help help you. And again, that could be consulting firms, they could be integrators, they could be, you know, traditional partners, it, it, different types. But as you're going along and you're participating in peer groups, you know, you're working with social media, you're doing all the things you do in that initial phase, you actually um, grab on to some super connectors that you trust. And, you know, basically what they're telling you about your specific, you know, software, the customers that you have, they're basically helping you form how you're going to build your marketing strategy. That's the story of partnerships. And that's where it starts is during the 68%. What's interesting is there's a majority of, for example, SaaS buyers, like we're talking about, that are actually getting to vendor selection before ever talking to someone. So they don't talk to a salesperson. They don't actually reach out to the vendors themselves before choosing them. Because the way they've been informed, the way they've been influenced during this first 68% gets them to the point of confidence that they already have their own, and it's on average seven layer stack in their mind. The average you know, marketing or sales professional will buy seven layers on top of a Marketo, an Eloqua, a Pardot, a HubSpot, an Acton. They'll buy six other layers on top of it. So that's mostly been formed, again, before you ever talk to somebody. And now when you get to the point of transaction, you're going to go a couple of different ways. It's what's, what's interesting is the average today, 73% of these you know, SaaS founders or heads of marketing actually prefer to buy in a more e-commerce, direct, marketplace kind of way. 
this has changed. You know, in the last couple of years, the majority would have said, you know, I'll buy it from an integrator or I'll buy it from some sort of VAR that can pull it all together or a distributor that, that can do all that for me. But as demographics are taking shape, you know, it's 80 plus percent of millennials and, you know, 70 plus percent of, um, of everyone as a whole will actually probably start their journey, you know, to building this seven layer cake. They'll go to Adobe Marketplace. They'll go to the Salesforce App Exchange, where Exact Target and Pardot are. You know, they'll go to the Oracle Marketplace, where Eloqua is. And they'll start to, you know, get influenced there as well by other types of partners. But the point of transaction may or may not be from that partner. You may have somebody who pulls together all seven layers and then provisions it for you, manages it for you, measures it, as well as over time, you know, does the performance and does the integration implementation work. But what we're finding is it's more likely that you're going to have a team of different people from different firms that come in at these different stages. So your preference is not actually to be to procure it from one person that you know you may not use as the general contractor. You will actually probably want to procure on the App Exchange instead. That's kind of the difference in terms of what I talk about in terms of channels is the resale, which has really driven that part of the market for 37 years, is declining. And I believe that marketplaces, you know, and Forrester believes, by the way, in five years, that 17% of all B2B transactions, business transactions, will be through marketplaces and online commerce. So accelerating the rapid decline of resale. Yep. We have a, we have a private Slack group for marketing automation and the constant questions that are coming through are on behalf of clients of the members inside our private Slack group. And it's always around, you know, what's the best tool for this? What are you guys using for this? How do you integrate this with this? Uh, or, or what is the best integration for this use case? The recommendations that come through that channel are inevitably what the end all client gets. So what's happening there is me as the SaaS owner, I'll, I'll be going through either my consultant or my marketing agency or my private groups, and I'm putting these feelers out or I'm putting a use case out and a product either gets chosen for me by my consultant or my, my agency that ends up being the product that I'm going to be using or someone recommends something and that person may or may not uh, be a formal partner of that uh, software, but very rare for a SaaS founder or uh, any founder in this particular hypothetical, I'm a SaaS founder, but any founder to go out and just procure a piece of software straight from the website. So hypothetically, I did get approached by a reseller, whether it's a consultant or maybe an agency, they end up being a reseller of the CRM or the marketing automation tool or what have you. Take me through the PRM side of that transaction and how that operates on the tracking and the back end side for the actual software and that partner. Take me through that if you can. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So the, the, the dynamics of it is it's multi-tiered. You know, you could have that reseller, for example, as a, you know, as a manufacturer, as a, in this case, a, a SaaS developer, you could have them directly signed up with you so that they basically, um, take the customer, you know, bill the customer directly, take their money and then pay you a less amount, which is kind of that MSRP price minus the wholesale price, you know, type of 
And in that scenario, they will make front end margin, which is the delta between the MSRP and what they sell it for. They'll make back end margin, which will be things like incentives and volume rebates and spiffs and other things you might uh, do to kind of juice sales. And that's kind of a traditional transaction flow. And that's the way both sides you know, report revenue. On the partner side, it's pass-through revenue. Um, but they get to acknowledge and they get to report uh, all of the top-line revenue. So that's why you find you know, relatively small partners being billion-dollar companies. Not because they're a traditional billion-dollar company, because 90% of it's basically pass-through. And they're reselling manufacturers uh, out, out, at, out at price. The second way it goes is two-tier which is there's a distributor or wholesaler involved and you actually sell through a distributor, you know, somebody like an Ingram, Cynix, Tech Data type of company. And then they sell to the partner and the distributor actually does the work of building the other six layers of the cake and allowing that partner who may not be signed up with, you know, some of those other companies to have that ability to sell all seven layers to single bill it, and a distributor does the logistics and the, even the credit and, and some of the other things to make that work. And, and that's a way. And then in some cases, you know, in, as a third example, the SaaS developer will use, you know, some retail marketplaces. So there are like, you know, selling your product through Amazon for business or, or Alibaba or something like that. They may use a technology marketplace. So you'll decide to sell on Adobe, which is Marketo's marketplace, or you'll sell on the App Exchange, AWS, Microsoft, Google, IBM, Oracle, SAP. I could list off 20 you know, major marketplaces that you're going to sell through. And in this case, you actually, the, the partner in this case is that marketplace who taxes you. For example, on the App Exchange, it might be 15% of the sale they take off the top as a tax. And, you know, that's basically the way you pay margin, you know, for that transaction to happen. So lots of different ways to get it to the customer. And what we're seeing is this expand as the customers want to deal, you know, in, in different ways. Just to clarify the PRM, what checkboxes does the PRM solve for the end all be all manufacturer? So PRM, you know, partner relationship management is you think of it as the, um, system of record for the partner and depending on how the procurement happens it actually manages the you know recruitment of that partner the enablement education training certification the way you develop that partner incent them motivate them drive loyalty the way you co-sell and co-market for example market development funds the way you go to market with that partner it manages all those pieces it measures uh, you know performance it allows you to do partner plans and QBRs and all the things you do to, to make that relationship work resides within the PRM. And, um, you know, that's basically your operating system for running a channel program. Got it. And for those of you listening, if you've never heard the term co-selling or if you've never dealt with co-selling, maybe you've heard of it. The software in these systems is getting very robust and very user-friendly as to enable these co-selling, reselling partnership activity. Let's turn the tables once again, now that we talk to the SaaS product owners that are about to build out their system and they're getting introduced to a partner. And just to recap, they may um, enter into a community or 
enter a marketplace and most of them are finding the partner resellers in that way. Uh, whether it is the marketplace itself, a good one is, uh, let's say, G2 Crowd or Software Advice. Those are great examples of how this is working, but also communities, you know, private groups, etc. You get introduced to those products via multiple channels, and that's all being backed by some level of PRM, partner relationship management software, some sort of tracking software, and sometimes a co-selling solution as well. Now, if I am a user and I am not a partner, talk me through the process of converting a partner and enabling a partner. And what are some of the solutions that are out there? Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, it's, it's a process. It, it has about 90 different steps to it. it it's not, uh, it'd be great to oversimplify it, but, um, you know, for partnership professionals and alliance professionals, uh, there is quite a bunch of detail that goes into it starts really, you know, with a strategy and design. You know, you talked about ICP, ideal customer profile, but you have to start thinking through your ideal partner profile. So I mentioned who is influencing your buyer, you know, before the transaction, at the point of transaction, after transaction, you know, who's the, if your customer is the star, you know, the center of the universe and the planets that are orbiting are all these different kinds of partners. And again, some are transacting, some are non-transacting, but the fact of the matter is, you know, there are potentially millions of partners out there that are potential for any business. And just to give a stat from last week, Salesforce said that, you know, to double our business, which we're going to do from 13 billion to 26 in the next four years, we require 250,000 new partners. That's the level of scale that, that we're talking about. In, in terms of being able to do that. So it all starts with a routes to market and a go to market strategy that says who influences our buyers, our prospects at what stage and who are our ideal partner profiles. We want to really answer five questions and I call them vectors. So if you look at our buyer, I mentioned, you know, 65% of all buyers today are line of business executives no longer infrastructure when they buy SaaS. So the head of sales, the head of marketing, operations, finance, HR, as well as the CIO and CTO and, and CISO, et cetera. So who is my buyer? Second is what industry, or even better, sub-industry. There's 27 industries, but there's 297 sub-industries that we should be pretty focused on in terms of our solution and where it can you know, work the best. And you know, obviously the partners that would surround that. Third is the geography. You know, there are very stark differences between the US and Europe and Asia Pacific. And when you get into specific regions within the US, when you get into specific countries and provinces, very, uh, very um, specific things that, that are different. Also the segment size and sector of the customer is the fourth thing to look at is, is it, you know, are we really going after SMB type of customers, enterprise, mid-market government, where are we focused? And then where do we fit within the 40 layers of the tech stack? You know, I mentioned there's 175,000 software companies today and they spread pretty evenly across these five vectors. Is it security focused? Is it, is it compliance focused, continuity focused? Where is a network performance focused? I mean, it, there's 40 layers of it that you could be focused on. So it's interesting when you talk about the marketing professional, 
there are 7,000 logos on that one MarTech stack. And so 7,000 out of the 175,000 are purely aimed at the VP of marketing CMO types. And I could break out the 175,000 in each of these sections across these five vectors. So anyway, once you define your ideal customer profile, then the ideal partner profile starts to take shape. And you find out that there's not millions of potential partners. Now there might be thousands or hundreds or dozens of different types of partners, depending on what specific you get. And that's how you manage the PRM system as a user. So how do you find and recruit these specific partners? How do you onboard them? Get them you know, up to the level where they can be dangerous in terms of knowledge. How do you educate, train, and certify them? How do you continuously develop them? Because they're probably, you know, selling your competitors and getting their mind share is the hardest thing. How do you incent and motivate and drive loyalty? When again, they can choose to spend their time on something else. They can choose to sell your competitor. How do you continually get them to be loyal? And then, as you said, you know, one of the trickiest things is how do you co-sell and co-market? So, you know, when you're looking to market, for example, with one of these partners, you know, you have, and we talked about earlier, you might have nine competitors. And because you have nine competitors, you've all competed and drove the cost of keywords through the roof. So now you're paying 10 or $20 a click on Google, you know, in your you know, area that you're focused on. Guess what? These local businesses that represent you as partners, they are favored by Google. They're favored by Facebook and all these other social networks as small businesses and local businesses. So it's more likely organically that a local business is going to get to the first page and maybe even the first result of Google organically. And even if you did a pay-per-click, they'll be paying $2 a click for that keyword where you're paying 10 or 20. It's automatically an 80% savings. And when the person clicks, it'll go to your syndicated content. So it's identical to you getting the click directly because it's coming to your content. That's great. We have a little segment here where we want to talk about those six columns in your infographic. And again, I'll link in the show notes to the article that we keep referencing. But Jay has put together this infographic, a long version of the infographic, but part of the infographic represents these six key areas um, that you need to focus on in order to develop a full-scale partner program. Maybe some of you would not ever get into the co-selling and co-marketing aspect of it. I would actually argue that if you have a partnership program, you are inherently co-marketing. Co-selling is another level, but co-marketing for sure. If you find that page that is ranking, that blog, that uh, marketplace, that community, whatever it is, and you go into them with a co-marketing strategy, um, we as marketers, we do this all the time where we will purchase media, we will sponsor a podcast, et cetera. And it pains me to see marketers that are spending countless dollars buying media without an actual partner program bolstering that, without anything behind that to say, hey, you know, we may we may buy a link on your site, but let's let's make sure that you're talking about us to your channels, to your friends. Uh, make sure you're you're speaking about us at events that you're going to. And here is the co-marketing relationship, but also here's the incentive to make sure that you are continuing to talk about us offline. But let's talk about that real quick. Can you go through and just do a quick mention of each of the six stages, starting with um, strategy and design and go through each one of those? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, strategy and design is really the go-to-market and your ideal partner profile and understanding, you know, the capabilities and the capacity that you need within your channel. You know, a lot of people skip over that step too quickly and they end up uh, wasting a lot of money and they, you know, being in a channel, by the way, building a channel program and building these partnerships and alliances uh, is worse than Major League Baseball. I mean, there's an 80% failure rate and even up to a 90% failure rate. So if you're looking for one good partner, you basically have to recruit 10. And the best channel people, you know, the Hall of Fame channel people still have about an 80% failure rate. So there's no way to just find your best 50 partners and go grab all 50. On playing the averages, and I watch about 10,000 programs in detail, and to play the averages, you'd have to sign up 500 to get those 50. And this is really around strategy and design, or those numbers could be much worse. You could go sign up 500 and get two good ones, and that would just waste a lot of money and effort and time and frustration. The next stage, number two, is to find and recruit. And, you know, almost like what you said in terms of finding a new market and understanding what they read, where they go, who they follow. I actually publish lists of super connectors and, you know, people, it's pretty easy to, you know, create these lists of um, these type of things. So in the technology world, there's 54 magazines and 150 shows and all these different things. And I've, I actually publish the list of top 100 people and you can really get in and get those endorsements and find those 500 to get the 50 good ones. Now you've got to onboard them, enable them, and develop them, which is number three. And that's the education, it's the training, it's the certification, basically making them smart enough to be dangerous in front of a customer and to understand the trigger words where to bring up your solution or product. You know, the next stage is, you know, these are independent consultants, so they don't owe you anything and you need to incent and motivate them and, and drive loyalty. So there's, you know, money changing hands here and there's, different things you can do, monetary and non-monetary things you can do to really drive that connection. Uh, co-selling and co-marketing, which is the fifth um, you know, part of this, we, we mentioned that they're very different. You know, the, the sales enablement and the co-selling mechanisms are, are different than obviously the through channel marketing and marketing to, through, and with these partners. But there's a lot that goes into understanding how to go to market and, and getting these things with, by the way, a lot of partners are not that refined, you know, they, they're business owners, but they might be technicians at heart. So they're not really good at sales. They're not really good at marketing. So 66% of them are really the uh, do it for me or do it on behalf of me type of people. So you have to kind of lead the selling, you have to lead the marketing and, you know, they'll just kind of ride with you and they're not going to take the lead in anything. And then the sixth column is really the managing and reporting, how to measure all of this, how to refine it, how to drive performance, how to obviously report ROI and how to scale it, you know, becomes that last part. And then you start back at the beginning and you rinse and repeat and, you know, figure out the size and scale the channel needs to be to get you as an organization to where you want to be. That's wonderful. That's a great breakdown. So um, just to recap there, the six stages are strategy and design, find and recruit, enable and develop, incent and motivate, co-sell and co-market, 
finally manage and report. Um, so we'll link to that infographic. And just to debrief everything that we've talked about, we're going to do another talk to the listener. We'll round off with this. It should be pretty quick, but let's give each persona a little bit of what to look forward to and what to be careful of type of advice. So, so let's talk to first the software companies with a budding partner program that they want to scale. So they've got the infrastructure in place. They've got maybe a couple partners that are happy. What can they look forward to? What should they be careful of? Yeah, a couple of things. I would study those couple of partners that are happy and study the ones that are working. And that would probably inform you of your broader ideal partner profile. And if you can find a couple that is really working well, you could probably go find 10, 20, 30, 50 more in the next 18 months. And that would be the fastest most effective way of building out your channel, basically replicating success. You know, once you're beyond that, you're starting to look at what we talked about earlier in terms of the customer and all the planets that are orbiting. But I, I'd want some quick wins and to get investment and to continue the investment from your board or your investors. I'd want to show them that, hey, I went and got 10 more. I increased our business by 2x. And I can do this and this is how we do it. We built a playbook. That's what I would focus on. All right. So find something that's repeatable based on the knowledge that you have that got you those first couple of partners. Next persona that we'll talk to. So what about the startups hoping to start their partner program earlier than most would recommend starting a partnership program? And typically that's pre-product market fit. So maybe you don't quite have your unit economics completely ironed out. You have good traction, but you can't say for 100% certainty that you have product market fit. These are the companies that are saying, you know what? We love our product. We believe you'll love it too. Why don't you become a partner we're starting our partner program today. What would you say to those? This is where I'd express the most caution. I did my own startup for six years before Forrester. And until you lock down not only your product fit, but your direct sales and direct marketing capabilities, you're not going to want to franchise anything until you've built a solid, repeatable internal process. And that's a lot of companies get out of the gate too quickly and they, haven't, they don't have everything fully baked. Like you can think about McDonald's before they had kind of the process fully baked. Um, if they started franchising without those controls, it would have never become the McDonald's that we know today. And that's where, you know, out of the 175,000 companies, there's about 30% who are either doing channel or thinking channel. And I'm always hesitant that, you know, they've got the product market fit. They've got the direct sales and marketing, you know, internal processes built. And then you can franchise and make, you know, different hamburger joints in different cities and different countries from there. Don't, don't start too early. It can be expensive and, uh, you know, it'd be the, have the highest failure rate. And what would you say to the argument that the data that you get by actually advertising that you have a partnership program, showing that landing page with the form, measuring the traffic through that page, the conversions, having those initial conversations with people coming through that funnel, whether you spend the money on PRM solutions behind it or not, that's up to you. But let's just say you have that partner program link in the footer and that's it. Do you have any advice on just gathering that data early on? Is it, have you seen that before? I, I do. And I always caution people from like, don't go into these 90 things thinking you have to do them all. 
you know, your, your, your real role is it's like when you started your company, you're trying to get a couple of logos, a couple of customers that are happy that are going to work with you on your product roadmap and really build something that's, you know, valuable to, to most, to, to many. And the partners are the same thing. Don't be too concerned with a big flashy portal with big flashy programs and things like that. Get those couple of happy customers or partners that we talked about at the beginning, learn from them, build an advisory council full of them and have their, them guide you in terms of your partner program roadmap. You know, next they want a deal registration. Next they want lead passing. Next they want, and get them to help you build the 90 part program over the course of years. But, you know, don't think that you have to boil the ocean uh, at the beginning. And, you know, there is no table stakes here other than having a couple of good partners and replicating that success. Awesome. Now let's finalize here with talking to the partner program manager. So this is typically someone that maybe came out of a sales or marketing role. Now you have a partnership program in your organization and you, you move that person over to own this new partner program. They've never done it before. So give them a little bit of advice, words of wisdom, maybe even some places to go to connect with other program managers, anything like that. Yeah. The first thing I would say is you're probably adopting a, a gold, silver, bronze type of tiered program built around reselling. And that's great. I would spend about 30% of my time refining that, making it best practices, asking a lot of questions, you know, doing that kind of work. I would spend 70% of my time going back and looking at the customer that center star who's orbiting that customer and figuring out what my channel is going to look like and needs to look like in two to three years. And I would spend 70% of my time focused on those communities, focused on having as many conversations as I can. And the same thing over again. If I need, for example, more of digital agencies in my future, I want to bring on a couple of digital agencies, find a couple of you know scenarios where it can work successfully on both sides. And then I would build a playbook and replicate that. It's five o'clock. So I would look at expanding across, you know, some of these different non-traditional channels and building out a more of an ecosystem play and letting this gold, silver, bronze program kind of run its course. I love that. Great advice all around. We've done a great synopsis. I mean, obviously you've got some content out there, much of it on Forrester.com will link to. You've got a lot of speaking engagements coming up. So hopefully I'll be able to share a link to what you've got going or any of the uh, upcoming events that people can attend and hear you in person. This has been very eye-opening for me. I've learned a lot in our 40 minutes here, 45 minutes, I believe we're at. So we definitely want to wrap up. And I think the final thing, just give people a place where they can go and connect and learn more from you. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm all over. So uh, the letter J McBain uh, on Twitter, J-A-Y McBain on LinkedIn, the letter J McBain again at Forrester.com if you want to hit me up on email. Yes, definitely give a shout out to Jay and thank him for being on the show and check out all his resources. He has some incredible stuff out there and he is the luminary in the space. If you go ahead and track him, you'll see why. So thank you very much, Jay, for being on the show. We are very appreciative and I hope to have you back. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Take care.